was it that you had to say the name of repeatedly it that time? It was Gemma Kearney. It was Gemma Kearney. Gemma Kearney. Still got that little bit of recording. Keeps me warm at night. <laughs> Gemma Kearney. Gemma Kearney. TV and radio presenter Gemma Kearney. Gemma Kearney. Gemma. Gemma Kearney. Gemma Kearney. TV and radio's Gemma Kearney. I know. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 170 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm old Mick Dundee. (laughs) (laughs) I've given Mickey a new nickname. More on that later. I'm Mickey Noonan, mother of fish. What's this? I've missed something in my week off, I think. Yeah, the Zunilliums has added an aquatic wing slash we got a fish tank. Are there fish in there? (laughs) There are fish in there. There wasn't for a week because you have to let it bed in. But now there are ten tiny, very shy fish. They're very cute. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and one of my neighbours has bought a remote-controlled car, and I'm now permanently on the verge of running into the street and smashing it into smithereens. Two thoughts. One, excellent use of smithereens. I feel it's underused these days. Well done. Two, the noise. It's just, oh. I mean, I work in audio, so that is like the perpetual (laughs) background to everything now. It's just... I don't know why I'm doing that. You could probably hear it going on in the background. How old is the... I assume it's a child, it's not an adult. Yeah, he's about 14. What's he doing with a remote-controlled car? He should be taking drugs. Jesus Christ. Time to go and sort his life out. (laughs) Great advice from the mother of a standard issue. You're welcome. On that bombshell, I'm Jen Offord, and with every passing YouGov poll, I become increasingly convinced that it's time to instigate my benign dictatorship... Fernando, are you shitting me? Gonna need more info, please. Favourite ABBA song, right? So let me find it for you. Fernando is up there. I thought Fernando came in at like 5%. It was like high enough. So the highest one was obviously Dancing Queen. Fair play, it's a bit of a banger. 1%, name of the game. That is a banger as well. Doesn't even make the list. SOS, which is my favourite. Who the fuck is voting for Chikatita? Can I just say, everything you've just said really doesn't back up the idea that you're going to have a benign dictatorship. (laughs) I mean, the dictatorship's not benign, but there's some absolute disco bangers on in the background. (laughs) Whilst you're strung up for disagreeing with her. Some some absolute disco bangers of Jen's choosing. Yeah, I'd like that. Actually, she's running this benign, in inverted commas, dictatorship, and her favourite song is SOS. Everyone's favourite song now, Jen. All right. (laughs) Tell me, what's benign about Super Trooper? Absolutely fucking nothing, yet 4% of the people surveyed say it's their favourite ABBA song. What's wrong with you? We know that people shouldn't be allowed to vote on anything. Look at the state of the country. It's disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. Anyway, later on, I chat to filmmaker and artist Margaret Salmon about her film Icarus after Amelia and the impact of lockdown on women. I think the impact's quite clear. They're getting very het up about ABBA. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I've been on the old Zoom with Gemma Kearney to talk about public art, why it's important, and the new TV contest to find a new landmark for Coventry. In Jenny Off the Blocks, there's a lot of sport. Again... And in Rated or Dated, we are heading into the outback in some inappropriate swimwear as we watch 1986's Crocodile Dundee. Um, I'm actually wearing that for for show later. You can't (laughs) see it because I'm sat down. But first, manifesto U-turns, vino in Porto Colapso and a saviour of bees. (laughs) 
Bees! It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. All the world's problems... No, I don't know why I said it like that. All the world's problems have been solved since we last recorded. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> I love that you're like, your inner voice came out. That was amazing. <laughs> Did you see that I shared a thing the other day of some guy who was recording a... I'm not even going to bother with the intro. We'll be on that now. A guy who was trying to record a push-button thing for a cinema in New Zealand that was shut because of COVID. And he accidentally uploads the whole thing. And so if you ring the cinema, you get this guy going, welcome to the call line for the cut. No, fuck it. And it's really funny. That's basically me as proof. Anyway, the schools are back as the summer limps to an end, albeit a sunny one, finally. Which means that Parliament is set to return and Prime Minister Boris Johnson, remember him? Sadly, yes. He's set to face his first battle, this time over a plan to put up national insurance to pay for what's been called social care reform. I mean, you totally said you wouldn't do that in your manifesto, mate, but... He's usually so reliable. Mm. Yeah, yeah. As ever, I'm speaking on a Monday, which means that the plans aren't released in detail yet, but because this government leaks worse than a service station teapot, we know some of them. And people aren't happy about the plan, and that includes Labour. Remember them? Mm. Mm. And Tory backbenchers alike. Let's start by saying that I think everyone is in agreement that the NHS needs more money. But it's worth pointing out that although national insurance is one of the least unpopular taxes we pay, as it is perceived to fund the health service... In fact, it pays for all sorts of things and is only paid by people in work, which means that a wealthy pensioner earning a small fortune every year from investments will pay nothing extra under these plans. But somebody struggling to work two jobs to pay off their student debts or feed their family will be hammered by the rise. In fact, the Institute of Fiscal Studies says under these plans, less than half the money would come from the richest 10% of families. Wow, wonder who they voted for, eh? Hmm. This is very much Labour's argument, and Sakir of Starmer has ruled out supporting the plan, as too have some Tory backbenchers who also point out that raising national insurance will impact businesses who also pay it at a time when many are struggling to recoup losses caused by the pandemic and subsequent lockdowns. More news as it happens, and by that I mean when Laura Kunzberg tweets about it. (laughs) Anyway, if you were hoping for... An uplifting news story from me today. I'm afraid I bring you the very worst news. That Robert Foy, the owner of Hardy's parent company Accolade, has warned of a wine shortage at Christmas. Haven't we been through enough? <laughs> I'm really glad my dad didn't live to see this. <laughs> Bad times. In fact, he said, the shortage of truck drivers currently blighting basically everything in the UK right now means that in order to mitigate that risk, prices could well be pushed up. Oh, God, why? (laughs) So what's caused this estimated shortfall of 100,000 drivers? Well, guys, it's our old favourites, COVID and Brexit in part. A huge rise in demand for online shopping, coupled with staff shortages due to illness and, of course, EU drivers returning to their home countries. It was only funny when it was Weatherspoons being affected. That was quite funny for it a week, funny. Though, wasn't it? It was, it was funny, funny for a week. But, OK, for those of you who neither go to Weatherspoons nor enjoy a bottle of reasonably priced plonk, well, sorry, guys, but it turns out the impact is way bigger than just booze. 
What? What could be bigger than that? Do you like having your bins collected, for example? I do, yeah, I do, actually. Is this a euphemism? No, oh, wait, no. it's not, it's not. <laughs> Either way, it's a yes. This isn't the Mail Online, but uh, as in the obsession with bins, bin day and bin collections, but Lyra's nappies fucking stink, and I am all about that timely, well-managed refuse collection. Last week, 18 councils confirmed that they're experiencing disruption to bin collection services. What about what about flu jabs? Do you like not having the flu in the midst of a never-ending respiratory illness pandemic? I've been quite enjoying it so far. So last week it was reported that GPs were having to cancel appointments for flu jabs due to shortages caused by freight problems. Meanwhile, blood tests were also being cancelled for non-urgent cases due to a lack of test tubes. Mm. And you put non-urgent in bunny ears, and rightly so, because some of what is being deemed non-urgent is diabetes. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Uh, so that Pinot Grigio shortfall suddenly doesn't seem so bad, does it? I've, I've got an idea. Can they put the blood tests in the empty wine bottles? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds cost-efficient to me. Let's get the Tory administration on it. Oh, I'm a red wine drinker, and I think it's just going to be really confusing. <laughs> oh. It's all right, because everyone knows that blood is blue, so you'll be able to tell the difference. Mm. Yeah, it's only point. blue when you're roller skating in white jeans. Good point. Anybody want some good news? Yes. Think so, yeah. Hmm. Well, it's good news for bees. Bees! <laughs> and beekeepers. <laughs> and fans of bees. So you, Mickey. And Yay! fans of honey. Yes. In fact, <laughs> it's good news for everyone, except those bad bastards, murder hornets, Fuck which have been wreaking havoc across Europe, where they have no natural predators, since accidentally arriving here on a boat from China in 2004. I feel the plot of Disney's first animated horror film (laughs) is emerging right here. But hold up, here comes French beekeeper Denis Jaffrey, who lost 35 hives to murder hornets. I'm enjoying how much you're enjoying saying murder hornets. (laughs) Which I can't help but imagine flying around with tiny flake knives. (laughs) Although, to be fair, they might as well be, as they can apparently eat through a hive in a few hours. Wowzers. Wow. Mr. Jaffrey, who I feel the need to point out, obviously he's French, but he beekeeps fully clothed. Fully clothed. He can be French, but he's also got a bit of common sense. It's good yeah. to know. Yeah. Sadly, he didn't shout any bee facts throughout the interview <laughs> that I watched. They needed to have got Michael Caine on that. Bees! <laughs> he's invented a device which traps the invaders interestingly his first prototype was made out of a wine crate because he's french um (laughs) it's gonna be loads of them lying around now as well isn't there anyway hornets are drawn in to the device which traps the invaders much like a lobster pot but enables other smaller creatures to escape and they're drawn in with the promise of that sweet, sweet sugar water. Mm. And then I'm guessing they just die in there or he's collecting them to build an army. It wasn't clear in the video that I watched. Yeah. The beekeeper slash inventor points out that his new trap, which is selling like hot croissants, is very much <laughs> a prevention rather than a cure. But says a nationwide approach is needed to tackle the issue for good. Isn't that how? Please. Isn't that how people have always like trapped wasps? Bit jam in a thing, and then they go, they get fucking crazy on the sugar and get drunk and die. Isn't that always how they've done it? Well, yes, but this is kind of on a large scale. Okay, fair enough. Um, I don't have that many jam jars knocking around at home either. Yeah, it's like this enormous 
thing and they can fly into the funnel, but they can't get out of the holes. How? Why they can't get out of the funnel, I don't know. Because they're pissed. They're pissed oh, and they can't navigate. They're hornety minds. Yeah. Drawn the little by things the sugar. that go in there end up, because they like just tear bees apart. They're, yeah, mm. they're cunts. I mean, murder hornets is not their technical name, but... Have you got a technical name for us? I think it's Asian hornets. I think oh. that's correct. Yeah, not Killy McStriper stubbers. <laughs> More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where I look to a man to get me started on sexism of the week. But this week, perhaps not in the way you're used to. So, on Saturday night, I was at a party, I know, get me, chatting to a bloke I've met just once before. His missus is currently pregnant with their second kid, and I expressed a general, like, wonder that I have been feeling at the moment that knackered people with a toddler can even think about doing it all again. And he said, I know, when you look at what the female body can do, and that includes whatever makes them decide that despite all the pain and difficulties and risk, they're up for doing it again... Women are just goddesses, really, and I think men find that frightening. It's too powerful. And then he said, sorry, that's probably really simplistic. And I was like, no, mate, you are spot on. And you basically (laughs) just summed up why the patriarchy exists. Because if pregnancy, if making another person could be replicated, there would be no controlling of one half of the human race by the other. And... And this is key however a person identifies. By that I mean males controlling female bodies. And so to Texas, where I'm sure you're all aware that the US's most draconian abortion law since 1973's Roe v. Wade came into play is now happening. Brought in on September the 1st after last-ditch efforts to halt it were dismissed by the Supreme Court, the law, erroneously known as the Heartbeat Act, bans abortion from as early as six weeks, a point where most women don't even know they're pregnant with no exceptions. And it empowers, deputises if you like, private citizens to sue an abortion provider who violates the law or indeed sue anyone who aids or abets the procedure for $10,000. It's basically a bounty system. At Gracie M in a box did a call out for real life stories on Twitter and she was doing some heartbreaking tweeting, including... Tonight I'm thinking about Jill, whose partner removed condoms during sex, flushed her birth control pills down the toilet and yanked out her IUD. Eight and a half weeks. And tonight I'm thinking about Caroline, who had not yet had her first period before becoming pregnant, just over eight weeks. And tonight I'm thinking of Lydia, who just plain wasn't ready. Seven weeks. And it is heartbreaking. And you all know this, but I am going to say it again anyway. You cannot stop abortions from happening. You can only stop safe abortions from happening. And that will always hit those who can't escape the state, those who can't afford to travel, poor, minority and disabled women, the hardest. Now, I'm aware I keep using the word women, but some people who don't identify as women can get pregnant and need an abortion too. So it is important that the language is inclusive. But it needs to be inclusive, which means sentences might get longer in order to include, i.e. pregnant women, trans men and non-binary people. Just saying people is not a suitable shorthand because getting rid of the word women in an issue that overwhelmingly affects women obfuscates the problems and the injustices and the danger and leads to impenetrable custard, such as that treated by President of the USA, Joe Biden, who said... 
Texas law SB8 will significantly impair people's access to the healthcare they need, particularly for communities of colour and individuals with low incomes. We are deeply committed to the constitutional right established in Roe v. Wade and will protect and defend that right. Uh, what? It's empty language that helps no one. I'll finish, promise, with a tiny bit of good news in this slurry of shit. Shah Doobie, CEO of Match, which owns a host of dating apps and is based in Dallas, announced in a memo to employees that she would personally create a fund to support Texas-based workers and dependents who needed to seek care outside of the state, saying... As I have said before, the company generally does not take political stands unless it is relevant to our business. But in this instance, I personally, as a woman in Texas, could not keep silent. Surely everyone should see the danger of this highly punitive and unfair law. I would hate for our state to take this big step back in women's rights. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. On a lot of that. I agree with you about the language because the argument is, you know, that non-binary people or trans men who are already in quite a niche communities will be ignored by this. So it's worth pointing out that they exist. I actually think Absolutely. using the words there that pointing out that they exist because otherwise, you know, they're lost in a whole mass of humanity that also includes men uh, who have no relevance in this conversation at all. And the second thing that I would say is I've listened to a lot of stuff that sort of come out of America because, you know, I listen to a huge amount of podcasts that are made in America and there seemed to be an air of positivity that this could be overturned, that this is mm. not necessarily as set in stone as the people who make this law would would like you to believe. There are still avenues of which this can be attacked legally and I'm sure I have every confidence that there are people out there that are really well positioned to do it and I wish them a shitload of luck. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by broadcaster, presenter and all-round smasher, Gemma Kearney. Gemma, hello. Hi. <laughs> That's made me giggle. All-round <laughs> smasher. I like that. can have it. It's yours. <laughs> Hi. So, Gemma, you have joined me to talk art, specifically public art. First of all, before we talk about the programme you're involved in, I want to know why you think public art is so important. This is a bizarre question because it's changed really rapidly. I think if you'd asked me this time last year what I thought about public art, it would have incited enthusiasm because I really am a big lover of the arts in general and how they can help us see the world differently. But in terms of specifying that to public art, that has become increasingly exciting uh, through the the lens of being part of Landmark, my new TV programme, which has just been thrilling to be a part of because I've learnt loads. I learnt loads about public art. And really, in short, there is something so special about all people being able to connect to a message whether it's historic, whether it's futuristic, political, calming, fun, escapist, whatever that might be, via a piece of public art in a community, in an area, in a city, wherever it may be, is out there and everybody kind of has to have an opinion on it, even if they don't like it. Mm -hmm. And I love that. (laughs) So you touched on it there. You've teamed up with Sky Arts on a mission to create the UK's next major landmark. The series, running for seven weeks from September the 6th, is not called The Great British Art Off. They've missed a trick there. No, it is called Landmark. Could you tell us a bit about how it works? What's the concept? 
So we traveled to all the different regions that make up this crazy place called the UK. <laughs> and three artists from each region were given the challenge to respond to a brief, which basically was about their area. So we went to Wales, we went to Scotland, we went to the North, we went to the Midlands, to the South, to Northern Ireland. And we asked people who already make work, who are already artists, to make a piece and to be considered the winner so that they could get to the final. If they get to the final, whoever wins this, and I can't say who does, they get given a huge budget to create a permanent landmark. So this had to be kind of worked out through a series of heats all around the country. And each show is completely different because the UK is made up of all sorts mm -hmm. and how people responded to the brief of their area was just fascinating. Some of it ridiculous, some of it really moving. And then it's all battled out in the final where they have to convince via almost a PowerPoint presentation <laughs> and some plans, uh, the councillor of the City of Culture in Coventry and, and other art experts as to why they deserve to create something that everybody's got to look at forevermore <laughs> and, and the process is is as compelling I think maybe is the word as it sounds it's it's mental in some ways it's quite insane because everybody's got something different to say people use different processes and make work in different ways people are inspired by by different things particularly in this really kind of scary loud world that we're in right now mm -hmm. it was a, a real honor to be part of a team looking for somebody to create a landmark. It was really cool. I've seen episode one and thoroughly enjoyed it. It was set in, it says the North, but it is purely Yorkshire, which I'm fine with because I lived in Yorkshire <laughs> a long time, but you know, I'm a Lancashire lass, so I was a little bit miffed. <laughs> and when you're telling the three contenders at the end who's won, you can see that you are like kind of distraught that you can't like everyone's a winner. Yeah, I really like people. So <laughs> I don't like, upsetting them or smashing their dreams because I'm a big believer in that dreams come true and that we all deserve to live them and suddenly I was part of a competition show <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't necessarily enjoy that luckily for me personally I wasn't a judge I was there to facilitate conversation I was I was sitting there in, in amongst the chatter when the experts and our guest judge in each show would choose who should go through to the final but I, I didn't actually get the choice myself so I think that that was quite good for my temperament it was just yeah. delivering the news <laughs> that was hardcore <laughs> so it is a competition but I've got to say it's also a really cool insight into the huge amount of energy that goes into the art that surrounds us and to be fair we're perhaps a little bit guilty of taking for granted I think so and that's why I said to you at the beginning of us chatting I've thought about public art before. I have got friends that work in, in that sector. And it's interesting, but to really go behind the scenes and see how it's made gives a whole other dimension. And that's another reason why I think that Landmark is a really interesting show mm -hmm. as a series, because we're seeing the welding, the carving, the visceral side of it. And, and also public art is, is actually physically quite big. You yeah. know, you have to think about health and safety um, and durability, which 
again, is really easy to take for granted when you're quite annoyed and pissed off with something that's been given a load of money and you don't really like outside your local McDonald's. Mm-hmm. You know, when I grew up, this really weird thing was like a water feature was put outside my McDonald's and it was just a place to sort of paddle when it got too hot and it was really weird, and a place to meet your friends. But, but when you see the vision behind a piece, it's someone's vision, and they are also managing a team of people to make that become a reality. Mm-hmm. Not one person makes it because it's so big. You need to be able to really explicitly get people on board with whatever might be in your mind and some of it is pretty abstract and bizarre yeah my hat is off completely (laughs) now to artists that make big work in in a way that I'd never thought about before I love that as well again I've only seen the first episode but the the three artists go in so what first of all Sadie's hilarious because like you just said she gets this copper made and she goes oh god it's really heavy and she 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 knew what she wanted to do but then the reality of it because they don't they've got two weeks they don't have time to make maquettes so that's really interesting but also what they want people to take from it it's so hard isn't it because it's not necessarily what people will take from it I know, and that's why I think that these people are particularly brave. Mm. I just suddenly was thinking about interior, so our obsession with interior, particularly after 18 months of in and out shake it all about lockdown. So I'm looking (laughs) at you as we record this, you're on Zoom, and you've got an amazing mirror behind you, some incredible wallpaper that is just absolutely glorious to my eye. (laughs) And I think about our obsession with creating beautiful spaces, a lot of that is quite personal you know like that's in our homes mm-hmm. so to project a vision stroke idea stroke piece of history some of some people some people really want to touch upon or educate or honor a really really delicate part of of a place's history to put that out there for public fodder mm-hmm. to be graffitied on spat on weed on sworn about (laughs) is crazy to me but I think it's really brave and bold and cool and I love that it makes people talk and I love that it makes people want to talk that is the true magic and the essence of public art definitely we all grow up surrounded by public art like your weird thing outside mcdonald's like i spend a lot of time in leeds so i love a barbara hetworth particularly a family of man series my big love has always been the angel of the north by anthony gormley which meant i also fell for gormley's on crosby beach i think it's called another place and stick i live in london now and stick just makes me happy whenever i spot a stick so i'd love to know what are your favorite bits of public art I love the Angel of the North too, particularly since moving to Scotland, which is a newer thing. This happened this year. But having travelled all around the UK for Landmark, and I have done previously in in another way, but I feel like the world looks slightly differently now Mm -hmm. in terms of feeling the real sense of privilege when travelling anywhere. Yeah, yeah, totally. (laughs) Uh, Heading back northwards feels really special and poignant and seeing a landmark especially having thought about what that means you know rather than just like oh there's that thing again it does really mean something it it means something geographically um and and it makes you think about what home is and how to kind of physically place that and I'm quite a nomadic character as well so as you say these 
these anchors, these pillars, quite literally, these moments of feeling happy or or uh, understood or a moment to be thoughtful are are really quite special. So I like the Angel of the North too. And we had a, an Anthony Gormley down in Margate where I lived for six years before I moved to Scotland. I don't even know what it was called, but it was one of his men, one of the men, and it was out at sea. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's literally for anyone that hasn't seen, he's got them everywhere, but the, it's like a figurine of a person looking out at sea. And it was hilarious to me some mornings. I'd be coming back from a, a yoga class in a really jolly mood. And depending on the tide, you'd see different parts of of the figurine looking out at sea. And in some, like on some mornings, I'd just be, it'd be me, the beach, and him. And I'd be like, all right, go on. <laughs> I found that really funny. Oh, in Leeds City Art Gallery, which is an amazing space, there's um, a maquette, a small sort of like our height brick Gormley, like a brick man, that there was put forward to Leeds City Council. Would they want a brick Gormley, like the Angel of the North? And they said no. Oh, what? how rude! So rude. <laughs> this is this is the thing. It does really invoke such strong feeling. Mm. And the people that are the gateway keepers are interesting as well in terms of like that there are people in charge of planning that might not be the biggest art lovers and uh, they actually get to decide what we see in our areas. I know. Some pale, stale bloke with a picture of the dogs playing pool in his front room has decided that we're not allowed a Gormley. Outrageous. Exactly. (laughs) We're talking favourites and you've sort of touched on it, but I'd like to know how important you think public opinion is when it comes to public art in some ways it's really entertaining (laughs) (laughs) i'm going to talk a bit more politically about democracy in a second but it's actually really funny to hear genuine reaction (laughs) i i i i love it i love it when people are honest and when people speak from the heart yeah i find it really fun i think there's, there's something about it that equals and defines community to me you know a community is made up of so many different things my favorite types anyway in terms of a community is one that is filled with different opinion people from different walks of life and really like encompasses the spectrum of of British living and, and and the kind of madness that goes with that so to hear that opinion represented is is a joy for me a giggly joy even if somebody hates it even if someone is disgusted by it I kind of want to hear it but on a more serious level access and inclusivity to the nuance of art for me as a young woman having grown up in the latter part of the 80s through to the 90s now in 2021 having an arts education and never have gone to uni and done all the things that I've done. It's just so deeply important. It's part of my heart now. So public art is an access point. It's an entry point. It's a statement. It's a an opportunity perhaps for a community or a place to find a language around grief um, mm-hmm. for new chapters saying goodbye to something that doesn't feel right anymore and moving forward or 
learning about someone's story as to like what saw them through their hardest times or something that just makes you howl with laughter because it's so absurd. And these are emotions that we all deserve to feel and explore because it helps us feel together. Societally, I'm so sad and scared sometimes that we have forgotten the importance of togetherness. Yeah, I think this this year's made it even tougher when we needed it the most. It just it's been impossible to access. Yeah, and let's be honest, a gigantic sculpture <laughs> is going to bring us together because we want to talk about it, mm-hmm. and we're going we're wanting to talk about how it makes us feel and what it makes us think about. And I think that art is a salvation in some ways. It has been for me in my life. And I don't always want to read an Instagram caption that sums up everything. And I, I don't think even the news completely cuts it. We need things to represent how complex this actually all is, which is living. <laughs> yeah, and you, you're absolutely bang on. And also that visceral emotion that it kind of gets out of people is incredible and that's why art is so important and obviously we've had a series of governments who just keep fucking slashing arts funding and it's a nonsense it's like you know when you go abroad to explore other places you go and look at their art their museums the stained glass in a church because it makes you feel stuff or it's beautiful or if just because it's beautiful or because you've heard it looks weird that is the stuff that we seek out so i'm hopeful that people will watch landmark and understand a bit more what goes into it and then appreciate how important art is and why we need to keep fighting for it to be funded for kids to have access to it and like to to become the next sculptors bang on (laughs) yes come on i need someone who's going to grow up and design more tiger wallpaper so i can put it in my house What we see in our eyes is just so, so important and we should be interrogating it all the time. And if we're not seeing... And and I mean it in our mind's eye. It doesn't have to be in our eyes, (laughs) quite literally. But our environment on every level is really important and conducive to quality of life. And I think that we should always be asking ourselves and those around us or supposedly, you know, an authority why it's not good enough and it's not just the weather (laughs) (laughs) so much more (laughs) Gemma what else are you up to oh that's a fun question I don't know just keeping on keeping on trying to have a good time (laughs) (laughs) I mean that is that is fine put that on a badge trying to have a good time t-shirt bag merch like sort of navigate goodness always and that does mean like progress and redefining that and living better and being better but I'm writing a book um, called The Immortal Sisterhood which will be published with Canon Gate in 2023 that's very exciting yeah and it's about incredible women who have overcome different challenges and how those specific challenges overcome have inspired me at different points in my life um, and a lot of the women have not really been celebrated in mainstream history that is um, right up our strasse so you need to come and yeah, talk to us I'll about let that. you know for yeah, sure definitely. So the and you can follow the hashtag and my discoveries on Instagram it's quite 
an emotional journey for me but like a very I feel very like a sacred one so yeah just put in the immortal sisterhood and you can see some of the women that I've discovered and I am doing a residency at an art park in between Edinburgh and Glasgow called Jupiter Artland and it's as weird as it sounds it's like a sort of Willy Wonka of art and amazing there's, there's lots of sculpture in there and um a an entirely cosmically mosaiced swimming pool that people can book sessions and swim in. Incredible. <laughs> um, it's super cool. And they commission all sorts of interesting exhibitions and shows and artists. And I have been given a little bothy, which is a Scottish traditional place, like a dwelling that anybody can sleep in across the countryside. But I've been given one to write in. So I've, I've got a very exciting residency title called Thinker in Residence which I love that is nice that's that's another t-shirt mate I love it so much I'm like sorry guys just thinking <laughs> but I think that's like we could all do with a bit more kind of allowing ourselves to have that time to think yeah. to contemplate to look at art to have just moments of silence and doing nothing but you I mean I I'm not saying you're doing so. nothing or having a good time even or allowing ourselves it some pleasure I've got a friend staying with me for a month and last night my boyfriend I and her had a full moon dinner because it was full moon yesterday and so we just had a, basically a massive feast and lit loads of candles and then we were doing these like little inquiry that kind of like pamphlets like personal inquiry and uh, one of them was like when was the last time like you created just for the point of creating and even though the three of us are all like creative people and have creative endeavours it was a really good question because just like when are we just like I don't know sketching or writing a poem or mm -hmm. anything that evokes an eye roll from the masses and <laughs> <laughs> doesn't necessarily earn you loads of cash <laughs> maybe that's the thought process if you think to yourself I want to do that and then you think would it provoke an eye roll from the masses and the answer is yes you fucking do it you sit down immediately and get doing it definitely <laughs> I, I, that, that that's been pretty much my my adult life anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Gemma, thank you so much for chatting to me. It is, as ever, it a gorgeous pleasure. And yeah, Lovely good luck with everything. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm joined by Margaret Salmon, artist, filmmaker and educator and director of documentary film Icarus after Amelia, which is showing at the Open City Documentary Festival. Hello, Margaret. Hello. So your film, do you want to tell us a little bit, first of all, what it's about? Yes. So the title is Icarus and then in, in sort of parentheses after Amelia. It's a film that I began making before lockdown in early 2020. It was um, a, a, something I set out to make that was loosely like sort of riffing on the theme of feminist economics. So I was interested in learning more about what feminist economics is or what it might mean, but also what it might look like and how it might relate to the everyday kind of lives of women in Glasgow and in particular in a, an area called Govan, which is where the, the work was first screened as part of an exhibition called Glasgow International. So there was a very specific context um, in the beginning for the work that was being made and, and it was very much about Govan because it would be screened in Govan. The film 
as it was realized then in the end after a kind of hiatus because I had to sort of I, I literally was filming the night before the first lockdown began in Glasgow so there is some footage of, of women working you know without masks in an office for instance a choir in Govan and then put things on hold and, and then started re-engaging with the project when it looked like that kind of work was possible again uh, so that was last spring in 2021. And so the final film uh, is an introduction uh, to feminist economics. It literally has a kind of brief lecture by uh, Professor Sarah Cantillon, who works in Glasgow, and then goes on to sort of think and to ruminate about how that might sort of be observed within the sort of everyday lives of, of, of a few different women that I met and worked with some groups, some locations, businesses, but then also individuals in their homes. Govan itself has a, a strong connection in Glasgow with working class communities mm. and also kind of um, politics that emerged from those communities, labor struggles, uh, protests around housing, some of which were organized by women in the early part of the last century. And it traditionally Govan was associated with shipbuilding. But by and large, that, that industry is, has been shut down. And now um, Govan is a kind of a place that's home to a lot of um, new sort of residents in Glasgow, housing, asylum seekers and new, new Scots, you might call them. And so it's a very vibrant community with, you know, I would say, sort of multicultural, but largely is still a kind of working class or even underclass community. It's, it's in transition right now, but it's very much a place that has a kind of strong social, political and economic resonance in Glasgow. So one of the points that is made kind of early on in the film is that economic theory assumes that all people are created equal, which, of course, we know they are not. And and the film is, as you say, sort of about feminist economics. So presumably the people that you spoke to sort of tend to be in lower paid work. So these are the people presumably who are hit the hardest by that assumption. Yes. You know, it's interesting making a film like this because you... You sort of have ideas about the kind of people you meet and you have a, a, a set of expectations. But then also you're sort of, uh, I, I, at least I in my practice will be also kind of driven by a sense of who emerges or, you know, who I find and, and led by that as well. So I, I wouldn't say it's over, it's not really possible to over overly simplify, you know, to sum up who the women were. Because in the end, there were quite a few different characters and, and, you know, sort of lifestyles I encountered. But I would say that by and large, you know, most of the women that I met and spoke with, there was a sort of a set of assumptions around the labor that they were performing. And those assumptions, you know, I'd say by and large were very much based on their gender. I guess it's kind of like key that this was filmed during the lockdown period because it's barely been out of the headlines since lockdown began. I think we're out of it now. I'm not. I'm never really sure, to be honest. But um, <laughs> one of the things that's been in the news, sort of almost constantly, is 
the way that women have been hit specifically by the pandemic and the lockdowns that happened with children out of schools and nurseries, the bulk of that work fell to women, regardless of whether or not they had a full-time job to also take care of. And things like cuts to services, benefits, etc, etc, stuff going on now um, will obviously hit women the hardest because women are more dependent on those services. So I wondered, did any of the women that you spoke to... Did you feel that they had been particularly impacted on by the lockdown and, and, and the pandemic? Yes, yeah. I, I mean, I think the the point you make about this kind of space that's left empty when social services are diminished and the kind of workforce, which is then kind of, you know, instrumentalized, which, you know, which is the caring, the caring labor of, of, of most of these women who are like maintaining families maintaining relationships, but also volunteering and supporting their communities, you know, doing the extra things like making dinner, dropping that off to people that were isolating, all of that extra labor, um, which is part of a system of goodwill exchange, you know, and how much of that goodwill, which is, you know, sort of circulating within our, our, our communities is, is you know, operated and fueled by, by women. Absolutely. I, I witnessed that. I noticed that. Um, and I think that's that sort of comes across in the film. So there's talking about goodwill is something that's very um, useful and, and trying to sort of negotiate how do we value that? How do we quantify that? We could use the word care. And I know caring economy is, is a kind of buzzword. And, you know, I hope it doesn't just sort of fade mm. <laughs> as an buzzword appears because it's it, these are deep questions to ask like what kind of society do we want to live in what do we value is everyone a kind of autonomous unit an island sort of just making their own economic choices and can be valued and assessed how they contribute to the economy itself and what is the economy these are big questions but they're questions that by and large have been proposed and answered through a, a highly gendered lens, through a man's perspective and a man's set of values. And I think what feminist economics proposes is that, you know, and I, I could go further and say white man's set of, and, and I'm generalizing here, of course, that doesn't mean all white men. We all need to stand up and start resisting that, those sets of assumptions and really taking it seriously that we want to build you know, better social and economic ideologies for our children, you know, for ourselves, our children, our children's children. Who wants to live in this? The film is kind of <laughs> very subtly watching and looking and showing some of these women and and just a sort of taste of what, what their lives might be like. And then it asks the question to audiences, is this good enough? What do you think about this? What are your values? You know, what is fe feminist economics? Should feminist economics even exist? Perhaps it just needs to be economics that includes everyone, not just one particular perspective. You know, some people did quite well out of the various lockdowns. If you still had, you know, a full-time job to do and, and you kept that and you didn't get furloughed and housing was safe and secure and whatever, you had the opportunity to save quite a lot of money, you know, to make quite a lot of home improvements, et cetera, et cetera. So there is like a huge inequality, I think, in general terms in the way that people experience those lockdowns 
But I think the thing that really struck me was that this discussion started that was kind of like, well, this this doesn't really work when something goes tits up. And we have an opportunity now to look at our systems and say, do we want to live like this? Do do we want to be in this world? Do we want to change things? And we could, you know, potentially come out of this all, you know, a much better society. And, and then it seems to me that incredibly quickly it just all went to shit (laughs) and and I don't want to wear a mask I don't want to get vaccinated I don't want to stay at home anymore and as I said I do think people experience these lockdowns in very very different ways and everyone had their reasons for reacting in the way that they did but I just wondered how hopeful do you feel coming out of this assuming that we are that things could and will be different going forwards? The, the heart of the question really is, or, or what you've kind of set out, the, 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 the scenario you've set out, is that, you know, it's, it's complicated. If you're, if you're middle class in Britain and, you know, you sort of have some, some moral fabric and a sense of, of wanting to sort of improve society or to sort of share some of the advantages that you have, you know, you, you, you'll naturally want to, to be aware of the inequalities that exist and how you might benefit from those. I think there can be a sense of guilt and shame, which can oscillate between sort of optimism and participation and then guilt and shame. And then, and then a sense of like, I don't know, like ennui, you know, just <laughs> fatigue from it all because it's overwhelming. I, I mean, there's, there's sort of big game out there that actually could make radical sweeping improvements for many, many people. And so it's also not getting distracted by sort of feeling that guilt and shame and understanding that you, you should do what you can. And sometimes that means just giving money to the people that know what to do. Food banks that are working out there and, and the people that I encounter that are actually, you know, continuously active and engaged with their communities and doing all of that good work. Uh, sometimes they don't need much from you except, you know, a bit of cash, really. So it's important to kind of remember that and then to think about the power that we have as consumers in, and also in sort of participants in the political life of our country. So it's about voting and there's a bit of pressure there and, and, and it can be a bit of a letdown when you don't necessarily see the results right away. But I think this is a long game. So it's important not to get discouraged. I mean, we're being conditioned with this kind of appetite for more news and more information and stimulation. And then, and then we get sick of it and there are all these cycles going on, but it's, it's important to just stay grounded and keep looking forward. The film is called Icarus after Amelia and which is a reference to Amelia Earhart. I wondered what is the connection? Yeah. A few years ago, I was, I almost made a film called Icarus and it was going to be an aerial film. It didn't get made, but the, the sort of, I was sort of haunted by the figure of Icarus. And then there's, there's something called the, oh God, I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it's called the Icarus principle or the Icarus paradox. But there's a sense of, um, in, in economics that sort of sets out and, and forgive me if I don't get this entirely right, but, um, it sets out this idea that that businesses can become victims of their own, like the things which make them successful also stop them from eventually succeeding. So, so the sense that Icarus is given a set of wings 
but told not to go too close to the sun, I think is a really telling metaphor for the state of women in the West at this point. You know, we've been given a set of wings, but, you know, it's, it's also a kind of analogy to the glass ceiling, right? Yeah. So we can see, we can see how high we can go. We're given the tools. Uh, we have the abilities, but we've got all this other stuff to do. <laughs> Yeah. in our homes, in our families, in our communities. We've been brought up to be caring and nice and helpful. And a certain set of mo- behaviors have been modeled to us as being positive for women. That's changing. But all of these things come into account. And then we plummet to the sea because we've come too close to the sun and we can't maintain that. The sense of that. And then early on in my research, Amelia Earhart had, had done the first flight by a, a woman pilot across the Atlantic. And there was this lovely story that I came across that she actually landed in in Derry in a field, in a farmer's field on her way to Paris uh, for that transatlantic flight. And there was this account that I came across of the woman, the, the farmer's wife, Mrs. Gallagher, who kept her that night. And then she went and flew the next day um, and finished her her historic flight. So there was something about this kind of interaction between Amelia herself, who was flying close to the sun, who was a kind of embodied Icarus in some ways, and Mrs. Gallagher, who, you know, who was the the woman on the ground, who thought about her well-being, who fed her, kept her warm, gave her clothes to wear for the night, and and then sent her on her way. And so in the film, it has this two, two audio recordings. One which is Amelia Earhart recounting her flight and then Mrs. Gallagher talking about the flight as well. And it turns out that when I when I shot the aerial footage, it was on the exact day, just by chance, that Amelia Earhart would have been flying from from Derry to to France. So yeah, it was quite extraordinary. Oh wow, wonderful. Margaret, so your film is showing tonight, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, at the Curzon Soho for the opening night of the Open City Documentary Festival, which runs from the 8th to 14th of September. And this is the 11th edition, celebrating the art of non-fiction filmmaking. Will, will there be an opportunity for people outside of London to, to see this? It's my understanding that Open City is offering an online platform as well. So the film will be available to watch online through their website. And I'll be there for the screening uh, in person. We'll have a question and answer period afterwards. So if you are in London, please do come along. Excellent. And where can we follow you? Are you on any sort of social media if, if we want to find out more about what you're up to with, with your film and art projects? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, though I'm I'm on and off it quite often. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think many you speak for many of us. <laughs> yeah, Twitter's about as far as I go. And you can find out more. I have a website, which is um, margaretsalmon.info. Brilliant. Margaret, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we tot up the medals as we discuss all things women's sport. Of course... I'm referring to the Paralympic Games, which have now come to an end, with GB amassing 
an epic 124 medals, including 41 golds, to finish comfortably in second place above the USA with 104 medals. China topped the table, as was the case in 2016. It was an improvement for the USA, who finished fourth in Rio, but I personally think that it should be seen as nothing less than, well, scandalous really, that a country of its size, which consistently tops the table in the Olympic Games, simply cannot replicate the same success at the Paralympics. To me, it says a lot about the priority, or lack thereof, that it gives disability sport, but there you go. Let's focus on the positive. Not that, although GB finished second, our performance was down slightly on that at the Rio Games, where we took away 147 medals, but that this time we set a new team record by picking up medals in 18 of the 19 sports we entered. That is unbelievably impressive. According to Paralympics GB chef de mission, is that how he say it? Who knows? Penny Briscoe, the return of Russia competing as not Russia, dented our haul a little bit this time, but she nonetheless hailed the team as having rewritten the history books. While we're on the subject of the Paralympics, we absolutely must give a ginormous tip of the hat, again, to Dame Sarah Story, who added another two medals to her, two gold medals, that is, to the 15 she already had since last we spoke. She had three events at the Games, the individual pursuits, time trial and road race, and she won all three. Three out of three. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it, meatloaf. Story is now 43 years old, but reckons she'll be back for a casual ninth Paralympic Games. She's already beat Mike Kenny's British record of 16 Paralympic golds. I wouldn't write her off, to be honest. A huge well done also to Kadena Cox, who you may have seen recently on TV's Celebrity MasterChef, which must have been filmed a squillion years ago during lockdown I'd venture from the state of John Rhodes Barnet. Anyway, she took two gold medals back from the Games in the C4 time trial and the C1-5 mixed team sprint, both in the track cycling discipline. In sadder news, swimmer and GB flag bearer Ellie Simmons seems to have retired after failing to pick up any medals this time round. I say seems to because she didn't give a sort of definitive answer on that, but we shall see. She already had eight medals, including five golds and four games, is an impressive record, so congratulations Ellie on an excellent career, if that is the end of it. But as one door closes, another opens, and both the WSL and Women's Championship got underway last weekend, as did the Allianz Premier 15s. In the latter, a spectacular win by Gloucester Hartbury saw them triumph 84-0 over the DMP Durham Sharks, looking positively porpoise-like there, lads. While the Harlequins dampened the spirits of Loughborough Lightning, I hate myself for that one, sorry, by 50-15, to put themselves at the top of the table by a comfortable points advantage. The league is back in action again this weekend and you can head over to Premier 15s, that's 15s.com, to find out how to watch the live streams of those matches. Manchester City went top of the table after beating Everton 4-0 and Arsenal beat Chelsea 3-2 in the WSL. Meanwhile, in the Championship, the mighty Charlton Athletic beat Coventry 3-1 in their first game of the season after their opening fixture against Lewis was postponed. I realise this excites most of you less than it does me. I should also begrudgingly mention that ITV has just signed a new deal to broadcast England women's football matches. The only positive about this can be Emma Hayes, surely. I really don't enjoy ITV football coverage. Over to all the other sports. I started writing this on Monday night and at the point that I left to go and have my tea, a wild card in the tournament, 
GB's Emma Raducanu had just won six games in a row to take the first set against the USA's Shelby Rogers at the US Open in the final 16. A victory in this would put her through to the quarterfinals for the less mathematically astute among us. I had to think about it too. She'd already beat Sara Saribes Tormo 6-0-6-1 to make it through the third round and equal her success at this year's Wimbledon tournament where she was also a wild card. I told you then to watch out for her. Also in the golf at the point of my dinner time break, Leona Maguire had just become the third player in the Solheim Cup history to earn her team more than four points in a single competition, putting Team Europe just another four points off retaining their title at 10-7 against the US. By the time I came back from my tea break, Team Europe were just two points off a win and Raducanu had booked her place in the quarterfinals of the US Open, taking the second set to win 6-2, 6-1. That is fucking phenomenal. She'll be up against 11th seed and Olympic champion Belinda Bencic in that match. And this is the first seeded player that she's come up against in the tournament thus far. So, you know, it's a tough draw, but my word, I'm excited for her future. We didn't even know who she was six months ago. What an incredible breakthrough she's made this year. And she's 18 years old, by the way. Right, it's 11pm on Monday and I've actually waited up to make sure that Europe won the golf before I went to bed. We've won 14-10. Yes, Europe! Yes, golf! I've changed. That's all for me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, which crime against cinema that you made us watch this week meant that I accidentally found myself singing a mental as anything song in a queue in the co-op. Well, Hannah, this week I'm taking us on a slightly different uh, tack here. Uh, we were, I hope, very much not swooning over 1986's Paul Hogan. <laughs> no. Um, As... <laughs> I've got, I found old handbags in charity shops that I found sexier. Uh, as the eponymous Mick Crocodile Dundee. Was anyone swooning? We'll come back to that. I'm going to start by saying so many things surprised me about this film, watching it again and delving into the making of it. And I've seen bits of it many, many times before, but never actually watched it the whole way through. Oh, interesting. Yeah, also surprising, given how many times my brother Mick, shite taste in films offered, watched it as a youth. We'll also come back to that. Surprise number one, to me at least, the screenplay was written by Paul Hogan himself and was nominated for an Oscar. Oh, Sylvester Stallone has so much to answer for, doesn't he? (laughs) That was the immediate comparison I drew, but Rocky is actually good. That's brilliant. Anyway, the story was based on real-life Australian bushman, cattle grazer and buffalo hunter Rod Ansell. And there I was, thinking it was based on every stereotype of Australian men ever. Surprise number three. It was also directed by an Australian, Peter Feynman, and related to that, surprise number four, the Australian Board of Tourism didn't sue anyone connected with this film, (laughs) as far as I can tell. (laughs) To be fair, Australia does look well fit in this film. Perhaps one of its... I'm not going to go as far as say saving graces, but, you know, that's a good thing, isn't it? I don't think you're allowed to use the word grace about this film at all. Am I laying my cards on the table too early here? A brief rundown of the plot. 
Reporter Sue Charlton is the daughter of a wealthy newspaper owner and girlfriend of its editor, Richard. She gets sent to Australia's Northern Territory to meet Michael J. Crocodile Dundee. A (laughs) A fishman like Rod, who has supposedly lost part of his leg wrestling a crocodile. Turns out he hasn't, but he's very good at performing Jedi mind tricks on wild animals and off into the bush together they go. Hilarity ensues. Natch. Sue has a nasty surprise when she's attacked by a croc when she's trying to fill up her water bottle in aforementioned inappropriate swimwear and Mick's softer side is seen as he comforts her. Obviously, she now wants to bang him. She's only human. (laughs) And she invites him back to New York City with her for reasons I simply cannot fathom. He accepts her invitation. For reasons of making this film a little bit longer. (laughs) But wait, she's got a fiancé who possibly she's always had and stuff. But I seem to have missed that bit because I was like, afterwards I was like, now I even less understand why you've gone back with her. Anyway, she had a, he was, York, He's a boyfriend and he becomes her fiance. Oh, right. Okay. Well, I've, I've, sorry. Anyway, New York is really busy as well and uh, <laughs> very unlike the Outback. Can Mick possibly fit in there? Will he get his improbable girl? Will he form an opinion? And will he ever stop looking a bit grubby? He looks really grubby. He Even looks when really he's in the grubby. bath, he looks mucky. really grubby. Is it just the tone of his skin? I don't know, but he just looks perpetually grubby. Anyway, a friend of my mum's told me a few years ago when this film came up in conversation, because it does come up quite a lot around the offered gaff. This was a massive and important film, which I instantly <laughs> dismissed as absolutely mad at the time. Remember, I was only three when this film came out, so I have like no memory of it whatsoever, apart from my brother watching it a lot. Anyway, so massive surprise number 12,042. It was! Made on a budget of 10 million, it grossed almost $48 million at the Australian box office. But hang about there, Sheila. It went straight to number one on its opening weekend at the US box office. That doesn't Um, make it important. Well, all right. Massive, though. (laughs) I thought it was really niche when I watched it. Like, I I had no idea that it was a big film. Oh, no, it was. It was huge. Despite obviously having met Mick Dundee himself at Madame Tussauds in the (laughs) picture that you have now seen. Uh, It made just shy of a massive $175 million at the US and Canadian box office overall, making it the second highest grossing film of that year after Top Gun and ahead of Platoon. Is it still the number one film in Australia ever or something? I wasn't quite sure about that. Um, God, I hope not. But it it (laughs) certainly was for a a while. So, having set out to make an Australian film with broader global appeal, I think we can say that Hogan and Feynman more than met their objective. It even spawned two sequels. It even spawned a wedding, with Hogan and Linda Koslowski getting married and remaining hitched for 24 years. An absolute fucking stunning fact when you consider the total absence of chemistry between them. (laughs) There is no chemistry. And that is a point picked up on by our old friend Roger E. Burt. The film has an 88% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, but critics picked on its plot for lacking, well, a plot. (laughs) Nonetheless, as well as Hogan's Oscar nod, it was nominated for two BAFTAs and three Golden Globes. It missed out on all of them apart from Hogan's win in the Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy at the Golden Globes. The fact that Kozlowski was nominated for anything 
remains the biggest shock of all to me. Rear of the year. Rear of the year, I'd have voted for her. Great mm. ass, to be fair. Cracking yeah. ass. Perhaps we'll come back to that. Her performance, not her ass. Maybe we'll come back to that as well. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, lads, you have both been to Australia and I have not. Hannah, you've spent a considerable amount of time there. So my, my question to you both is... Is this an accurate representation of Australia? And secondary to that, were you inspired to go to Australia because of Crocodile Dundee? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, not so much. Weirdly, it does treat Australia like it's some weird, exotic, just-found place. Like nobody has ever heard of Australia. Like he's this leader of a lost tribe <laughs> that's just emerged rather than made... someone who comes from, like... Uh, a pretty well-known country with a pretty healthy economy and, you know, a shared language and all of those things. It was made for Americans, though, really, wasn't it? And it's and America's yes. quite quite far from Australia, so maybe they just really... I mean, you'd, seriously, like, not that long ago in America, someone asked me if London was in Amsterdam. So, like, <laughs> it's, yeah. you know, like, possibly they it... don't have great knowledge of it. <laughs> Is it a representation of Australia? I mean, to be honest, I think it's kind of like not very, you know, when you said it look, Australia looks lovely, I'm like, oh, Australia looks quite average because having seen a lot of Australia, I mean, Australia looks a lot better than it does in this. I mean, it's just like a whole series of cliches, isn't it? But the weird thing is, because it's like 1986, a lot of the cliches come directly from Crocodile Dundee, weirdly. It's kind of created its own cultural sort of stereotypes Mm. itself. And actually, I wonder that about, because I've seen it once before, I'd say when I don't know, I was about 12. It's a rom-com, it's not funny. So I, 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 it wasn't really, I wasn't really into it. But I was amazed how much I was actually able to predict what was coming up. And I wonder whether that's because rom-coms after it kind of followed that format. You know, there's so many moments in it, like when this guy comes into the office and you're like, well, that's going to be a dad, isn't it? And it is her dad. With just loads of stuff that he does. And I think we could get on to how rampantly transphobic this film is. But like when he gooses that woman, you're like, you know, it's going to happen. Everything in it is really predictable. Sorry, I went off the question there a bit. Mickey. I'm I think sorry. you answered it in a way, mate. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I might be quiet because it gave me PTSD. I did <laughs> I did text Hannah at one point and go, I am having massive flashbacks to that time I went out with insert name of Australian comedian and I'm not having a nice time because he was that very manly, manly man. And that is what Hogan's character, old Mick Dundee, is like. She goes there this, you know, she's supposed to be some hotshot journalist, although her journalism is terrible. And I don't know. And obviously it's a daddy's paper. But also, I don't know where they're getting all that money from to send her to get a helicopter trip somewhere. I was like, mm. I couldn't even afford a taxi. <laughs> what? It was the 80s. It was a different time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we so, used to argue over 26 pence a mile or whatever Yeah, exactly. For expenses. Yeah, so she goes off and she's all, she's got some sort of agency until obviously you discover that her editor's a boyfriend and her dad owns the paper. But then all, what she really needs is world's most alpha man with a massive knife. I mean, it's very subtle, Jen. Very subtle. Um, that's what's interesting about it is that he's presented as an antidote to you know lesser men and yet those lesser men the ones that wear suits and go to an office job i still find them repulsively toxically masculine (laughs) like whatever he's rebelling against is still too blokey for me i don't know i I think he's meant to be charming because he's kind of like 
I don't know because he kills animals. I'm not, I'm not really <laughs> sure where they were going with that. To be honest. not not really my type. If I'm if I'm no. candid, like no one comes out of this film looking good, right? Apart from maybe the stuffed crocodile Cedric, but just like no one. She's an arsehole. He's an arsehole. Uh, other boyfriend's an arsehole. Uh, dad's an enabler and has created an arsehole. I, I just yeah. I want, there's no one to root for. There's no decent human maybe the driver he seems quite, the nice. Yeah. quite nice the guy from die hard <laughs> he is from die hard yeah the fact that her dad would think that this is a good idea is also the maddest thing in yeah. this whole film that her dad's like oh she runs after that after that aussie just kept saying oh i'm chasing this story and it's about this guy in the outback and he wrestled a crocodile i'm like but also just like who in america's interested who does she think the audience well, for this is that that streetwalker was wasn't she because she's like hey i've been reading about this guy like you know like it's a series of things it's not even one article even like the even the premise of like why she's gone to to interview him like hey she's not chasing the story really is she she's it's not like some big exclusive like she's arranged to interview a man and he's agreed to be interviewed and off, off she pops and and like it's even the premise of it she because he's had a bit of his leg bitten off by a crocodile uh, nicest possible way uh, who cares big whoop yeah, yeah. It, hang there's, on there's tell absolutely, me more <laughs> there's absolutely nothing to care about in this film it's so dull that's it that's the thing right it doesn't even have the good grace to be entertaining or funny and it's so famous and it's like it's in that you know it's in the simpsons it's kind of been passed down as like this warm big-hearted comedy it's not funny the big lines are not funny it's entirely predictable it's homophobic it's sexist it's transphobic it's just it's hopefully a fish out of water these days like it's protagonist but i just thought sure i was quite excited when you suggested it jen i was like part of me went oh okay there's not a great female character in that because i knew the story but maybe it'll be interesting because he is so alpha and i'm like and it's funny and it's not it didn't even have the good grace to make me laugh at one point i did send mick a message because we watched it at the same time uh saying that he was worse than terry uh which is saying something from buddy's song from buddy's oh yeah I don't know that he actually is. I think he said he's maybe. as bad as Terry. Maybe I said. I don't. I don't think Terry. he is as bad as Terry. To no be one's fair as to bad him. as Terry. No one's as bad as Terry. <laughs> Terry really is a prop. I can't. But like, I yeah. No, I don't. I don't think he's as bad as Terry. But I don't think he's like. I mean, he's not a modern man, is he? Shall we say he's not no. performative woke man. Not even a modern man in the nineteen eighties. No. In Australia. No. <laughs> so, no. So no. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I like I said, I'd never actually seen it the whole way through before, so uh, I, I didn't really know what to expect. But I did expect it to be funny. I did expect it to be more entertaining than it was. It was so boring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's not not your fault, Jen. It's very much billed as a comedy. And I read some people's reviews on Google and people who had just discovered it in the year 2021 going, oh my God, this film is so warm and entertaining and made me laugh. And it just made me really despair for people. I'll read yeah. to you quickly a message that my brother sent me um, when I, t- I texted him on Saturday night and said, uh, for professional reasons, I'm watching, um, I'm watching Crocodile Dundee. And Michael said, Michael said, isn't watching Crocodile Dundee for professional reasons the dream job? No, I said... I don't know how to say this to you, but it's not good. <laughs> he said, 
I know it's not good. It's amazing. I think it's quite a long time since he's seen it, to be fair. I and hope then he so. said, tell me with all honesty that the final scene in the subway doesn't bring a tear to the eye. And I just thought, I'd be so angry if someone stood on my head for yeah. like whatever reason. Ultimate in masculinity is literally walking over people to get what he wants. <laughs> also, it did, that final scene did bring a tear to my eye, Big Mickey offered, because I was just so relieved the film was over. <laughs> I spontaneously burst into tears. I'm sorry, Michael. I like Michael. But, yeah, no, yeah. it's not good. But Michael's got some sort of fingers in pies to do with the cinema, and I think they should be chopped off immediately. <laughs> He's the manager of a cinema. Um, in fact, Europe's oldest purpose-built cinema or something like that. He also really likes Buster, so make of that what you will. You know Buster? Phil yeah, Collins. Phil Collins. Yeah. 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 I mean, at least yeah. it's got a, some sort of Phil Collins music in it, which, you know, we're all big fans <laughs> of. Some sort of medley. So, Jen, I actually sent Jen something before we started recording. And that is because you thought Crocodile Dundee 3 was the end of this sort of trail of travesties. Oh, no, no, no. 2020, Hannah. Just a year ago. I know it was a year that Mother went on for four fucker. years. But, yeah, a film was released called The Excellent Mr. Dundee. All about Paul, Paul Hogan post being Crocodile Dundee. That motherfucker is still dining out on this, kids. He is still dining out on it. He's and changed his face, not his attitudes. His face! Did they release it during a pandemic in a, you know, kind of good day for bad news way? Maybe. There was a lot of spin. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Um, John Cleese is in it. Is it available on Amazon? I'm not sure. His face is like, as I said to Mick when she sent this to me earlier... I know the film was 35 years old, but he is unrecognisable as the same person. And he look, he looked older then than he does now. <laughs> like, mm. He like, looks like he's been in a wind tunnel for the past 35 years. It's actually called does, The Very Excellent Mr Dundee, so, you know, keeping it He down. doesn't look grubby anymore, though, so that's good. Well At one point I did message Hannah when we were WhatsApp watching it, and I said, how old is he? And she just wrote, <laughs> a full 100 years. <laughs> 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 yeah i did yeah i just didn't i just didn't have fun just there was just not there was not even like a guilty laugh that i no. could have it wasn't even so bad it was good it was just no. bad it wasn't i just the genuinely jazz hated it no it wasn't it was the just, jazz singer and i really thought it might be the jazz yeah, singer no, i really no, did i agree with you jen i was quite i was kind of excited my mum was oh god i'm so sorry i'm not sorry she deserves to be shamed for this she fucking loved <laughs> paul hogan as old mick dundee him and Dudley Moore as Arthur were my mum's like, she really fancied them, which, I mean, it explains, we haven't got time to explain what it explains, but <laughs> yeah, so I was like, oh, I've seen it quite a lot, I've seen it loads growing up, so there was a little bit, oh, this'll be fun, no, absolutely no, the joy sucked out of an hour and a half of my life. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'll do better research next time, guys. I don't think I need to ask this question, but I will, rated or dated. Dated, eh? Pure binary on this one, dated. A big, fat, mahogany face, dated. <laughs> Whose goes it next? It's mine, and I am going for an equally beloved and lauded film because Citizen Kane is 80 years old. Oh, man. Mickey, you oh, literally man. just... Like spent the last rated audaces saying I don't I don't understand I don't like the classics I don't think I, don't, I like them I'd committed to this one I can't we can't ignore Citizen Kane uh, oh. but yeah I'm I'm going to be interested because I have seen it before and spoiler alert didn't much like it but <laughs> I'm interested 
to see whether I've grown as a human, <laughs> Anna. But, you know, what I think I might do to make it more entertaining for me and for you is I will watch it in the guise of old Mick Dundee. (laughs) (laughs) Please do. Standard Issue for All Women.